Hey, welcome to the Neighbors Church podcast. For all of quarter one, all the way through Easter, we are in an in-depth study through the back half of the Gospel of John on the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. For many, the cross sits on the periphery of their minds and lives, but we are persuaded that the cross must be front and center for both our belief and the formation of our behavior as followers of Jesus. We're praying for you. Hope you learn a lot. Enjoy. If you need anything, reach out to info at sdneighbors.church. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. This is the word of the Lord. That was awesome, Sammy. Thanks, buddy. Grab your seats, everybody. This is our final day in our Atonement Theory series and this thematic study through the back half of the Gospel of John. Next week, we launch into the book of Philippians, an entire summer of studying joy. If you are longing for happiness, your heart is hurting, the book of Philippians will literally transform your life. I've been reading it every morning all the way through for about three months, and I see Philippians everywhere I go. I cannot wait to start teaching this book. It's going to be a really fun ride. But for this morning, as is always the case, deep breath into our bellies, eyes closed, and let's invite the Spirit now to speak to us through this text. Lord, as we close this series on sin and the cross, may you send us forth into this world as disciple makers. May we be a people who are prepared and empowered by the Holy Spirit And may you teach us that human flourishing, the heights of joy, fullness of happiness is actually found in following you and in self-denial, in carrying our own crosses, as counterintuitive, as upside down, as backwards as that seems, to find you and to lose ourselves is to find ourselves and be fulfilled and satisfied, to come to rest, to come to peace to be a people of non-anxious presence. These souls that you've gathered here today, bless them. Be their father. Draw them to contentment. Give them the grace and the mercy to release that which is imprisoning them to false standards of success, masks, and false identities. Free us, liberate us. May we be the singing, dancing children of God in San Diego. Smiles on our faces. The joy of the Lord, our strength. The joy of the Lord, our hammer in our hand to crush Satan and his vice grip of anxiety and depression and loneliness consuming the society. We worship you today in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. 
So 2018, Dr. Lori Santos launched a class for undergraduates at Yale. The class was entitled Psychology and the Good Life. Over 1,200 students enrolled. That was more than a quarter of the student body, 25% of the Yale student body enrolled in this particular class. It was the most popular course that was ever offered in the history of Yale. It was so popular that they only allowed her to offer it once because it had such an adverse effect on enrollment in other courses. One student commented on this class, the fact that a class like this has such a large interest speaks to how tired students are of numbing their emotions, both positive and negative. Now that class evolved into what is today the Happiness Lab. The Happiness Lab is one of the most popular podcasts in the United States right now, right up there with the Joe Rogan experience. We are, as humans, on a relentless hunt for happiness. And we will do almost anything that we can to find happiness, to attain it. This pursuit of happiness, it's literally baked into the foundations of the American psyche. After all, our founding documents declared that we have these endowed, God-given rights to life, liberty, and class, the pursuit of happiness. That's right. Yet, for some reason here in the West and in urban hubs like San Diego, happiness not only seems to elude us, we are actually experiencing, statistically speaking, the reverse. Right now, there was a study that came out just a couple of weeks ago, over or excuse me, right up to about half of today's teenagers declare themselves to be anxious, hopeless, and depressed. So loneliness, clinical depression, anxiety, suicide amongst teenagers, it has been exponentially increasing year after year. Our self-defining and our self-expression, our radical autonomous independence from anything outside of ourselves, our upward and to the right mobility, our hustle hard, have more culture has not ushered in this vibrant season of utopian human flourishing. Instead, we are literally dying as a society. Dr. Santos, she opened this psych course with this bold statement saying, our intuitions about what will make us happy are totally wrong which is exactly how the story of the Bible explains our condition as humans. I like to say that our happiness picker, it's broke. We don't know where to find happiness. We're using the wrong map to find happiness. We choose things that will never satisfy our souls in the deeps because we have, as the Bible says, lost the creator of our souls and the only true source of satisfaction for our souls. As the great theologian Augustine said, our heart is restless until it rests in you. The original garden setting was one of pure joy, and it was partnership with God and intimate union. And then when Adam and Eve deceived by the snake, the talking snake, which means that it was more than your average garden snake, when they took from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Hebrew sages were teaching us that they were choosing for themselves to define this is what will be the good life, this is what will be the true life, this is what will be the beautiful and the happy life, instead of trusting God and his definitions of good, true, and beauty. And so in that process, they died spiritually and they died physically, and so do you and I in our relentless hunt for happiness. What they thought, what you and I think will bring us happiness, actually resulted in death. 
And ever since that moment and from the time we are born until the day we die, we are all on this desperate hunt for happiness and we are unable to achieve human flourishing until Jesus. So as a church, we've been in a months-long meditation now on sin and the cross of Jesus. And so from different angles, we've been diagnosing this human condition in which we all find ourselves through the lens of that old Bible word, sin. And we've learned how Jesus came to forgive. He came to reconcile. He came to heal. He came to restore. He came to be our high priest. He came to be our champion. He came to be our sacrifice. And through those things accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection, we are now granted a joy that is inexpressible and unchangeable. And so, for this final session here in our series on atonement theory and this thematic back half through the book of John, we want to turn our focus back upon humanity, but more specifically, we want to meditate on the church specifically. That's you and I, the community called Christ followers. For today, we want to meditate on this counterintuitive, backwards, upside-down promise The promise that the way that Jesus lived, the way that Jesus lived as a selfless servant, the way that Jesus lived as a lover of his friends and as a lover of his enemies, the way that Jesus lived, humbling himself to the point of an unjust death on a cross, that way of living, that is the way to true happiness and human flourishing and heaven coming to earth. In the words of our master himself, Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. It was the poet A.H. Auden, and he was reflecting on why he believed in Jesus. And he said, I believe because he, referring to Jesus, I believe because he fulfills none of my dreams. He is in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. The scandal of Jesus of Nazareth's teachings was in his call to self-denial and personal death as the means to true self-discovery, real happiness, and the good, true, and beautiful life that we're all longing for. And so our topic for the morning, a cross-shaped life, the cruciform life. This is our hope. This is our means of happiness. Cruciform is a term borrowed from the world of architecture, and it describes a building laid out in the form of a cross. Ancient cathedrals in particular would be built in the shape of a cross. The church literally would enter into these huge cathedrals, and they would worship in the architecture of a cross. We are a cross-shaped community. Even sitting right here in this auditorium in Adams Elementary in Midtown San Diego, we are worshiping within the architecture of the shape of the cross. The cruciform life and its community is actually a way of life. It's an entire way of being. The cross for the community of Christians colors and shapes every decision that we make, every behavior that we engage in, every moment that we live in is colored and shaped and exists within the architecture of the cross. I would suggest, I would propose that the church is at a critical renewal point in history for you and I. For too long, Christians' pursuit of human flourishing, the church's pursuit of happiness, 
has looked exactly like our neighbor's pursuit of happiness. The only difference is we go to church about once a month and we try not to use Jesus' name as an expletive. And so there is this renewal movement happening within communities just like ours across the land where God is radically reshaping his people and he's radically reshaping them in and through and at the foot of and by the power of this cruciformed life through the cross. The cruciform life, friends, it is something that we must learn and live into. Despite Western Christianity's attempt to constantly turn Christian faith into three steps to this and five steps to that, the cruciform life actually requires a lifelong devotion of our belief and our behaviors. Then over the duration of our entire life, our souls are ever so slowly transformed and our values increasingly align with the values of Jesus' kingdom. This does not happen overnight in our fast food, high-speed internet culture. But incrementally, minute by minute, moment by moment, all through our lives, one long, slow obedience in a single direction towards and through the cross of Jesus we are transformed and made more heaven-like. So for the rest of the time this morning, there are four hallmarks, four hallmarks of the cross-formed life. These are checkpoints for you and I. Where am I in my cross-cruciformity? Where am I in this process of being shaped and reshaped, in giving my life, in self-denial, in death to the things of this world that I might live for the things of heaven? Four hall, why can I not say that? Four hallmarks of the cross-formed life. Resonance, resistance, passivity, activity. Shua put them together there in that little circle because as we'll see, they're not linear by any stretch of the imagination. As we are shaped, resonance, and you can just leave that up there, E. As we are shaped by the cross, or Nyla, as we are shaped by the cross, there's going to be these teachings. So let's talk about resonance. There are going to be these teachings and these practices that we resonate with. In other words, you'll come to church on Sunday morning, or you'll be reading in your Bible, and you're going to come across teachings of Jesus, or St. Paul, or Peter, or James, or John, or Jude, and you're going to say, ooh, I like that. That resonates. That sounded really nice. There's going to be behaviors that the church practices where we're going to be like, that fits. I like behaving that way. There's going to be practices that we come away from saying, hmm, that felt really good. That was nice. Equally so, as we're being formed by the cross, the cross-shaped life is full of confrontations with our flesh, the world, the devil, and sin. Therefore, there will be multitudes of teachings from Jesus and practices and behaviors that when we come across them in our Christian journey, we will say, I do not like that. I do not want to do that. In fact, I am resisting that consciously and unconsciously with all of my being. But resistance eventually in the Christian life gives way to what I'm just calling surrender. It's this moment where we let go and we trust God's definitions and parameters of flourishing. We take the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and we say, I'm not going to eat that. We trust his will in our circumstances. We move from what Gerald May, the great psychologist of the 60s and 70s, we move from willfulness to willingness in this process. We move from control to consent. Now understand, cruciform surrender this is not just defeating, defeatedly like giving into fate. I just resign myself to whatever will be because I can't do anything. 
Cruciform surrender and passivity is about resolving to let God be God and to trust him as the good and primary actor in all things, in all events. And then finally, from that passive surrender, resonance, resistance, surrender, from that passive surrender, we out of that then choose to move forward in active obedience, cross-shaped activity that is then fueled by humility and empowered by the Holy Spirit, and it manifests in radical obedience, resonance and resistance, passivity and activity. It's these four hallmarks that are constant in the cruciform life. And remember, it's not four steps to this or four steps to that. These hallmarks, they're a matrix of seasons and events, moments and movements that are constantly overlapping and intertwining with one another, always at constant play. And so this isn't four steps to now I'm living crucified. This is the way that my life being crucified is lived over and over and over. Now, from our text that Sammy so well read for us this morning, each of the hallmarks are on display in Peter's interactions with Jesus from our readings this morning. Let's talk about resonance in depth from Peter's life. Resonance. So in the scene in context, just prior to the text that Sammy read for us, Jesus had just walked his disciple Peter through his three denials. Remember, before the rooster crowed, Peter said about Jesus, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. And so in the restoration scene, the resurrected Jesus sits with Peter over a fish breakfast and asks Peter, do you love me? To which Peter responds, you know. Do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know I love you. One final time, a third time, do you know me? To which Peter responds with pain, reliving those three denials. Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And with each cycle of remembering and restoring, Jesus is recommissioning Peter now to leadership and to ministry. He concludes each of those agonizing, remembering points, those three points with, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, Feed my sheep. It is this scene of incredible forgiveness and lavish mercy. It is a scene of tremendous hope. It is a story of restoration, of purpose, and intimate relationship. It is a story that we read and we say, yeah, I like that. I resonate with that. That feels good. That fits. It resonates with yours and with my deepest needs and our deepest desires. And at the epicenter of that story of restoration and joy and hope and forgiveness and recommissioning of meaning and leadership, at the epicenter of that is the cross of Jesus. The cross makes that scene that resonates possible. The cross is what makes the way for forgiveness and mercy and restoration and renewed purpose. The cross is what creates hope and new creation. And so we resonate with the story, but the story is within the architecture of the cross. It is literally cross-shaped. And so when you and I live our stories in the architecture of the cross, day by day, there are a trillion points of resonance that can open up our souls to worshiping God. A cross-shaped life walks in total forgiveness today. It walks in the mercy of Jesus. The cross-shaped life lives out of this recommissioned purpose and renewed meaning. You have not been abandoned. You've not been cast aside. Your failures are not the end of you. In fact, every time you come to Jesus and you relive a failure, he simply says, I forgive you, tend my lambs, feed my sheep, go forth in my purposes. There are innumerable gifts 
that you and I are given through the cross of Jesus that will and are and always will meet your deepest needs and our greatest longings. And it is as those deep, deep needs and those longings are met that a truly cross-shaped life becomes a life of unshakable joy. A cross-shaped life becomes a life that is a non-anxious presence in the midst of all of the panic. And friends, as the church, we cannot get this backwards. Cruciformity is the foundation of human flourishing because, because the cross makes the way possible for us to live in this loving relationship with God without fear of loss or without failure. Therefore, the cruciformed life is not one marked by drudgery and self-affliction and self-hatred. The cruciformed life is like, it's childlike, it's curious, it's expectant. Because our good and loving God has done for us what we couldn't do. He has proven his love for us, and he will never leave us. He will never forsake us because he was forsaken in our place on the cross. We are to deepen in our resonance with these truths. Every time you come across something in the Bible where you find yourself saying, that fits, that feels great, that's nice. Ignatius would say, tend to that as you attend to the very beginnings of the bud of a flower coming out of the ground. Tend to those points of resonance. Go deeper, fertilize that, build that sensation, that prayer, that reliance on that resonance out because that is forming your life in the form of the cross. And it's the resonance with the wonders of Jesus and his love that will enable us, the more deeply resonant we are with the good things that seem to fit and seem so easy and seem so right for our souls, the more we deepen in resonance with those, it will help us to navigate when we come across stuff where we're like, I don't like that at all, and I am resisting that. Resonance will strengthen our resolve to overcome resistance more quickly. Let's talk about resistance here for just a moment. You guys, we've all heard the, that, that adage, that age-old adage repeated by the gym rats and meatheads in gyms across the nation. No pain, no gain. Bruh. <laughs> no pain, no gain. It's true, without resistance, the central nervous system and the muscular cells will not transform. Because Christianity is a process of transformation, you and I are over and over in our journey with Jesus going to encounter teachings and practices that initially are going to feel like way too heavy, way too much. I cannot do this. And we will resist it with everything that we have. In fact, I would suggest that if you are living a Christianity where everything just resonates and feels so good and anything that comes across your path that is resistant, you just kind of walk away from it, ignore, I would suggest to you that you are not experiencing the fullness of the life that Jesus intended in the architecture of the cross. Remember, before we became followers of Jesus, we spent our entire lives with the wrong map, pursuing happiness and human flourishing apart from God. And those patterns and those maps, they aren't gotten rid of and transformed overnight. And we exist in a society that amplifies those patterns and sets these standards of happiness that on the surface, when we look at the standards of happiness that society sets out for us, we're like, that makes sense. I'm sure that would make me happy. That would definitely make me happy if I was given that. But then they fail us abysmally. And we also can't ever forget, friends, the talking snake in the garden. That liar is so convincing. And he is lying to our psyches right now, persuading us that we can be our own little gods. And so resistance, resistance to the teachings and practices of Jesus, 
These are marks of where the Holy Spirit is delivering us from the flesh and from the world and from the devil. Therefore, resistance isn't something to be ignored, distracted from, suppressed. Resistance is actually a way marker to health and transformation. When you come across and you're reading something you resonate with, tend to it, deepen it, strengthen it, rejoice in it. When you come across something in your readings, teachings, on Sunday morning or in community where you're like, I don't like that, I want to resist that, tend to that, grow in that, find out why you resist that. Peter's resistance is on full display for us. I love Peter, the poor guy just humiliated throughout the entire gospel over and over and over. Jesus talks to Peter about his future. He says this kind of cryptic thing to him in verse 18 of 21. Very truly, I tell you, Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus uses this metaphor of dressing and going by one's own will and then dressing, going, and being stretched by the will of another. And he uses that metaphor as foreshadowings of what would become Peter's death. In the ancient world, the phrase stretch out your hands was commonly understood to be an actual reference to crucifixion. Now, as Peter's listening to Jesus, restore him, feed my lambs, yes, Lord. Tend to my sheep, yes, Lord. You're forgiven, Peter, that resonates. You're gonna be crucified, I don't like that. <laughs> to say that this didn't resonate with Peter is probably an understatement. In fact, the first thing he does is he does exactly what he did, what we would all do. He starts looking for his escape route. And so he looks over at his buddy's John. He's like, hey, Jesus, him? What about him? What do you, hey, what about him? What are you gonna do with him? If we are being shaped by the cross, we will do the same thing. We have this innate ability in our flesh with the power of deceiving lies guiding us. We have this innate ability to come across points that we resist and just avoid them or ignore them or justify them by a thousand different means. We all have our go-to list. Well, Jesus didn't mean that for me because my situation is unique. Well, Jesus doesn't understand what my upbringing was like, what my circumstances are like, what the pressures are. So this particular thing that I think he's probably asked me to do, he's not really asking me to do it. Jesus, you know, when I look out on the world around me and a lot of my Christian friends, they're not doing this stuff. You haven't asked this person to do that or that person to do that. So how could you ask me to do that? There's, you know, I just can't. We're just like Peter. We resist, friends, because Jesus is going after everything that we believe will bring happiness but won't, and he loves us. He is reframing our lives in the architecture of the cross, and that initially is very disorienting and sometimes terrifying. Jesus turns upside down the way that we think about material wealth and generosity. In a world that says you are defined by what you have, Jesus says sell everything and give it to the poor. I resist that with everything in my being still. I'm just being honest. He exposes our weaknesses and our limitations and our insecurities, and then he declares them our greatest strengths. <laughs> In a culture of hustle and make it happen mentality, we resist the notion. We resist it. We resist it with stress and anxiety and sleepless nights that our inabilities, insecurities, and weaknesses may be our most sacred value in the eyes of our Creator. Jesus gets right down into the nooks and the crannies of our, most incident, of our most intimate and sensitive corners. We live in this over-sexualized society where freedom of expression and behavior are considered the only true way to happiness. But then Jesus comes along and he says, 
Look, sex is not the highest form of intimacy. You can actually live a full, vibrant life without sex, to which our society says, and we find ourselves resisting that. Jesus says humans must exercise great restraint in their sexual behavior. And Jesus says some will actually thrive in a life of celibacy and chastity, chastity as an act of obedience to the kingdom. And so you see, as you're journeying with Jesus, resistance, it should be a constant in a life that is being formed by the cross. The call to self-denial and restraint and generosity and purity, these are calls to true human flourishing, to great happiness. But that joy is always preceded by weeks, sometimes months, in my case now, years going on, decades of very strenuous wrestling with Jesus saying, I don't like that teaching at all. Help me flourish and find happiness in it. And it's only as we fall back into those deep foundations of resonance. I love that teaching. That felt so good. Forgiveness and recommissioning of mission. I love all of that stuff. It's only as we fall back into resonance and greater trust that then we learn to trust and let go of our areas of resistance, which leads to this cruciform life, resonance, resistance, and then this surrendered passivity that comes through us as we grow. Passivity. Let's talk about it from Peter's life. Jesus' promise of Peter's future martyrdom it came to pass. Somewhere in the man's wrestlings and all the mistakes that he made, even after Jesus ascended unto the kingdom, Peter went on and he surrendered to God's will passively. Peter somehow went on and allowed God the Father to become the primary actor in his life. His prayer slowly began to align with Jesus's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, not my will, but your will be done. Church history and tradition tells us that Peter did indeed go on to be crucified. In fact, some reports say that Jesus requested or that Peter requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his savior. These moments of surrender to crucifixion, they will come in our lives in a thousand different ways over the course of our journey with Jesus. Now, it's very, very unlikely that any of us are going to be led to physical crosses like Peter was. And there is a difference between suffering for Jesus' name specifically, which all of us are called to, and then just the general, the general suffering of sin and the stupid decisions we make and a broken world and a Satan that hates us. There's a difference there. But no matter which way we find ourselves suffering, we will all find ourselves over and over going through circumstances that are out of our control. We are going to find ourselves in so many seasons of our lives where we feel like someone else or something else is turning the dials. Someone else is dressing me in ways that I would never dress myself. Someone else is taking me to a place where I would have never willingly chose to go. Someone else, it feels like, is stretching my hands out and pinning me with problems and pain, troubles, trials, tribulations, and suffering. Unmet expectations, lost dreams, Surprise circumstances, inability to control or fix certain situations, never gaining or losing position and prestige, financial troubles, familial strife. The list of crosses, metaphorical crosses upon which the hands of our souls are stretched in this broken world, it will be virtually without number throughout the duration of our lives. Different authors have called these seasons and these moments of crucifixion by varying names. 
St. John of the Cross talked about the dark night of the soul, which someday I hope to do an entire series on. Spiritual director Janet Hamburger, she writes about what she calls the wall. It's this immovable obstacle in our journey where one's life is just forced to sit down and say, I am limited and I can't make it around this. I've come to call these moments the void. I have a pretty dark mind. <laughs> the void. <laughs> it's a season of life where it just feels like everything that you thought you were, everything that you've been trying to be, it's just being dropped into a black abyss, into a void where there is no return. And friends, in many ways, there isn't any return from the void. There's no way around the wall, and the dark nights can get very, very dark. The cruciform life is a life where a literal part of us is dying. It's macabre. It's dark. It's painful. False parts of us, false parts of our story, fake, pseudo, illusionary happiness, it is dying on a cross in those circumstances, and it will not be raised from the dust. I have found that much of my agony in life is trying to raise dead parts of myself from the grave, that God is like, I killed that on the cross. What's being crucified is the standards of this world and our earthly, fleshy passions. That doesn't make it any less painful when you realize that, oh, okay, good, it still hurts but it does give us hope. Because as we allow this surrendered passivity to take control, we are being freed from our faults. We're being freed from the standards of the society around us. And we're entering true human flourishing and true joy. And we're aligning ourselves with the resurrected ideals of the kingdom of God. Our way through the cross and the death and into resurrection, though, the way through this, if you're in one of those seasons right now, it's to hold on to the points of the resonance that got us this far. Whatever Bible verse, whatever struck you, whatever comforted you, whatever, whatever, moment, whatever moments along the way where you've been like, that fits, that's good. Tend to that in prayer. Build that up in your body, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Acknowledge where you're resisting right now. Okay, I'm resisting because I believe this lie. I believe this standard. I believe this fleshy pattern. Acknowledge the resistance, and then simply join your Lord and Savior on the cross. Trust as Jesus trusted. Surrender as Jesus surrendered. Become passive. Yield to your Father. No longer being willful, but willing. Father, not my will, but your will be done. And from that place of utter surrender and passivity, there comes this activity. And we can rejoice and be exceedingly glad because we know that there is reward in heaven in our death. Friends, listen. We are deep in the weeds of true apprenticeship here. Western Christianity just doesn't have a category for this. Just doesn't, this, this type of teaching, this doesn't grow churches. <laughs> People don't want to come back to hear about dark nights of the soul and death on the cross. It's like, just give me my three steps to healthy networking in the name of Jesus, and I'm good to go. I think our Father loves us so much, though. May we be humble before his word, because he's calling the church in this season of renewal for our whole lives to be lives that are laid down before him, that everything in our lives must be formed by the cross, killed by the cross, so to speak, 
And once that pain has been endured and the loss has been completed, which does come, the dark nights do give way to light. The wall does crumble eventually. The void, you do come out of it new and fresh and alive. And then there's these resonant promises that become even more full. I have come, Jesus said, that they may have life and have it to the full, John 10, 10. This abundant life formed by the cross, it is this life of radical devotion and obedience. So as we live our stories within the architecture of the cross, we become these joy-producing, peace-multiplying people. We're going to be wrestling and resisting and fighting and screaming along the way, and then slowly through faith, we trust and surrender and passively let God become the primary actor, which then catapults us back out into the world in cruciform activity. Let's close by talking about the activity that we are called to. Jesus didn't even give Peter a hint of acknowledgement. Peter I recommission you. Peter, I forgive you. Peter, mercy. Peter's, yes, it resonates so good. Peter, you're going to be crucified. No, I resist that. I don't want to be crucified. What about him? He starts pointing, justifying, excusing. Somewhere along the way, Peter says, Father, not my will, your will be done, is crucified upside down. And in that space, Jesus never said, you know what? You're right, Peter. I am looking at John and not noticing that I haven't said he's going to be crucified. I change my mind as the cosmic creator of the universe and I bow to your will. (laughs) That never happens. It never happens. Twice over, in just this short, short little segment of teaching here in John's gospel, Jesus just gives the simple command. In resonance, follow me. In resistance, follow me. When you surrender, follow me. In fact, he doubles down on the necessity of Peter's specific obedience regardless of what anybody else is doing or not doing. John 21, 21 and 22. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? There's that moment with John. And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You follow me. This cruciform life is marked by radical obedience. This is where each of you as individuals listen to the Spirit. The cruciform life learns to slow down the comparison scrolling the keeping up with the jonesing. <laughs> and it simply obeys, and it obeys as perfectly and as devotedly as possible in your personal moment right now where you are with whatever Jesus is doing. So where there is resonance, we obey and deepen our faith and joy. Where there is resistance, we pray and we wrestle and we wear ourselves out crying for transformation. Then as sweet surrender comes, our passivity is transformed into this passionate activity of following Jesus right where we are. And the only thing that matters in those moments is for us to hear from him to us personally, well done, faithful and chosen servants. Here's what I want to close with. A final fifth hallmark of the cruciform life. And this is where we turn outward to the world around us. The cruciform life is for the glory of Jesus and for the sake of this world. You are Christians for others. You are Christians for others. We have spent an entire sermon meditating on the necessity and the fruit of our personal lives being architected by the cross. I trust the Spirit has stirred some hope in you saying, I would like happiness. I'll pursue self-denial. I can labor through these things. I can become aware of resistance. But so far, everything has been turned inward on the personal autonomous self. But when we really look at Jesus' cruciformed life, what we see is that his crucifixion was 
for the glory of his Father in obedience and for the salvation of the world, which means that the church's crucifixion and your crucifixion is for the glory of Jesus and the salvation of the world. John, the gospel author, he puts in this little parentheses right after Jesus' prophecies about his future death. Jesus said this, John 21, 19, talking to Peter. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Our cross-formed lives are for the glory of the Father. And just as Jesus glorified God on the cross, saving the world, our cruciformed lives begin to multiply his saving work into the world. Cross-formed lives, think about this tomorrow morning. If your life is deepening in that daily resonance, you wake up in the morning and there's your quiet time and your cup of coffee and you read that text that resonates and you're like, wow, I'm going to take that with me through the entirety of my day that resonance, then you carry through your day those innumerable gifts of God through Jesus' death and resurrection. What that makes you is an infectious person of joy and non-anxious presence, where all of a sudden your pursuit of happiness is in a, it's, it's using a different map than your neighbors. And they're curious. They, they become inquisitive. Somebody told me his story just a couple weeks ago because I made this goofy end of a sermon where I told everybody to smile at me because it changes your neurobiology when you like physically smile. Like right now you guys are smiling. There, you're welcome. <laughs> and they went to a restaurant and afterwards I guess they were all like just all smiling and beaming. And the waitress was literally like, why are you guys all so smiley? And they were like, Jesus, an infectious joy, a, a non-anxious presence. This cruciformed life, it is so that we might go into the world as examples for the world of the way that humanity can actually exist in this life. And then through our seasons of resistance, friends, we are reminded that our neighbors are struggling too, just as much as we are. Everyone is resisting something and struggling towards something. It's just that we Christians have a categorically different list of things that we're resisting and eventually surrender to. And so to practice the way of Jesus is to never forget that we were delivered from these false forms of happiness. And we're just not forcing anyone. We're simply inviting anyone and everyone to join us on this journey. All of us are dying. All of us are dying. The cruciform life surrenders to that reality. It acknowledges our limitations. It sets at ease our struggles. It takes off the masks and rests in the fact that God is, in fact, the primary actor in all things. And that is a very attractive way to live for other humans that are still trying to play God in this world. And so when we take off our masks and we're authentic and we surrender to our limitations, our cruciformed life is for them. It is for them, for our family members, for our friends, and Jesus would even say for our enemies. And our active obedience, all the feel-goods of resonance, all the wrestlings of resistance, all the moments of passivity lead to this active obedience of Matthew 28, go and make disciples. We are the salt of the earth, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. A community formed by the cross is inviting the world to their own cross to die and resurrect in Jesus to fullness of happiness and human flourishing forever. And so as we're closing this morning, we're going to come to communion. And I just want to, to cap it off. We can take courses on happiness from Yale University we can human optimize. We can, we can be upwardly mobile and materially wealthy. We can have it all. But that happiness eventually proves itself to be nothing more than an illusion. It's just a mirage in this desert of souls, worn ragged and thin without the living waters of God 
pulsing through our beings. But what's on, what's on tap for you and I today, through the pain of the cruciformed life, which leads to the deepest peace, is a true happiness. Think about that. Consider that. There is a true happiness, an unshakable, unchanging, everlasting joy that will be and is yours right now today through this deep, surrendered trust to God as the primary actor, as the one who knows how to create the good and full and beautiful life for us. The primary theme that runs through Scripture all the way up to Jesus and then right through the church in this moment is that God is bringing his people to surrender, and that surrender oftentimes looks like death, but it leads to life and flourishing. And so, as we come to remember the cross of Jesus this morning, may we find ourselves in the architecture of the cross. May our souls take the form of the cross. May we yield our resistance and find deeper resonance, and from there, may we be empowered towards greater and greater obedience as we make disciples in this world. Holy Father, Jesus, Son of God, and Holy Spirit, our triune creator, each of these souls come, some this morning with points of resonance, loving this passage they read a couple days ago. Help them build that into a bonfire in their soul, a bonfire of joy, a bonfire of mission and acceptance and forgiveness and intimacy with you. Build resonance into this church. Our behaviors, our practices that seem to fit and they feel so good, five minutes of silence, an entire day of Sabbath, that when humans begin practicing these things, it changes their lives because it's so resonant. So many of us, Father, myself included, it just feels like a wrestling match from sunrise to sunset. Resisting, resisting, resisting. It's because we are so convinced that the fickle opinions of humans matter more than your love for us. We're convinced by these delusions, these illusions of wealth, prestige, and power, and fame. We're convinced. Holy Spirit, come. May we surrender our resistance to you. And in our time of communion today, cross of Jesus. May we come to the cross of Jesus where we see that you surrendered everything in obedience to your Father for us. And may it create such resonance that we no longer resist. We just trust. We trust and we let you forgive. We let you recommission. We let you restore. And in our time of communion this morning, Father, may you restore mission and purpose in each of these souls. Our, our lives are in your hands. We continually believe the lie that we can twist the dials of the universe. And then in these sacred moments, you bring us face to face with the fact that we are not in control. We don't control you. We don't control the world. All we can do is be children that trust. I pray you'd grant these, these souls in this room that gift today, the gift of trust. Someday, Father, You may call us to our own sufferings in the name of Jesus. And like Peter, may we suffer well. May we stand before a world gone awry that hates who you are and love our enemies and pray for our enemies from our own crosses, declaring our love for the world. And may we die for this world as you did. 
Meet with us now in Jesus' name.